We're thankful for the time to be able to be together again today. Uh, we're just going to keep mentioning uh, different things, but we just want to, again, just encourage you with the, the harvest there. Just a point of clarification, there's actually not a sign-up out back. If you uh, just want to fill out the insert that is in the bulletin uh, and then drop that in the offering box, which are the two boxes by the back doors there, uh, we would appreciate that. But if you're hunting around in the back, you probably won't find any place to sign up. So uh, we appreciate that. We're looking forward to it. So uh, thankful for our time. You know, when I was growing up, I am the youngest of three boys. And so you know uh, that that means that we had a pretty competitive household. <laughs> if you've been around boys too long, probably girls are the same way. I don't know. I didn't have sisters. So, uh, but we were always pretty competitive playing sports, uh, you know, just constantly competing against one another. And as the youngest, you know, it was always a bit of a challenge for me. But I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the competition. I enjoyed uh, trying to beat my brothers. One of the benefits of being the youngest is that if you don't win, it's to be expected you're the youngest, but if you do, <laughs> you can lord it over them because uh, it's not always expected. Uh, but I, I liked games where, you know, you could sort of compete fairly <laughs> as best as possible, but there was this one game that my brothers would like to play with me that maybe you're familiar with. It's called the hand slap game. Have you ever played that? Right? So you have two people, one person has their hands palm up, and they're like this, and then the other person is standing opposite them, and they have their palms down over the hands of the other person. And the whole idea of the game, right, is that you're trying to, if you're on the bottom, you're trying to slap the hand of the person on top before they can move their hand away. But of course, the catch is, is that uh, they can try to kind of fake you out. And if you flinch and pull your hands before they actually go to slap your hand, then they just get a free slap on your hand. And you can't move, and they just hit it as hard as they possibly can. And so we would play this game, and I would lose repetitively. And my hands would just be beat red. But, you know, what was the worst part of the game was not really the pain. You know what the worst part of the game was? It was giving up. Because the game would just keep going on until somebody gave up. And that was always the hardest part for me, is I didn't want to just give up. But I also knew that if I stuck in there too long and hung in there, uh, that you know, my hands would just continue to hurt and continue to get brighter and brighter red. And so eventually I would have to. I would have to basically give up on the game and... I would have to just sort of acknowledge that I lost. And you know what's weird about that is it, it's kind of hard sometimes. It's hard to give up. It's hard to admit defeat, right? It's hard to surrender. Uh, but the flip side of that is that there's benefits to it too. And there was a benefit to me being able to say, you know what, I'm done. I can't take any more. And being able to make sort of what was happening stop. I think sometimes in our Christian lives, we have this almost negative connotation of the idea of surrender and what it means to surrender. Uh, sometimes we can kind of live our lives thinking that that makes us, you know, weak or less than. But what's amazing is that in the eyes of God, uh, surrender is something that he gives us that is a great gift. And so this morning, I want to talk a little bit about that with you. And we are in this, we're going to continue in a series called True Spirituality. And this is week three, and we've talked about what true spirituality is and isn't, right? And true spirituality is two components. It's a condition of our hearts, and it's the things that we do in response to who God is. And if our heart condition doesn't have a desperation, a hunger, and a thirst for the Lord, then it really doesn't matter what we do. Uh, but if we are hungering and thirsting after the Lord, then what we do matters. But we, we talked about last week that it's not just a checklist of doing things. Uh, sometimes when we think about what it means to grow spiritually, we just have a tendency to kind of think about it in terms of like, well, here's all the things that I do. But we talked about how when you think about and you have an accurate understanding, an accurate picture of who God is, specifically as a heavenly father, that spirituality and spiritual growth really is born out of relationships. It's not a checklist of church attendance and Bible reading and going to Bible studies and doing certain things, all of which are good things. 
But spiritual growth is not dependent on those things. It's dependent on the relationships. In fact, we can do a bunch of different things, but we can be disengaged in many of our relationships and there will be a complete disconnect in our spiritual life. And what we see in Romans chapter 12 is that Paul lays out this idea of like five different relationships and how these relationships then are the keys to our spiritual growth and experiencing true spirituality. And so this morning we're going to dive in and look specifically at this idea of surrender. And we want to understand what it is that God wants from us. And so if I were to ask you this question, what is it that you think God wants most from you? How would you answer? If you had to sort of identify or to think about and state What is the one thing, if you had to narrow it down, what is the one thing that God wants most from you? I wonder what your answer would be. I think for a lot of our world, it would be this idea of good behavior. Uh, According to Barna Research Group, 80% of Christians in America think that keeping the rules, especially the Ten Commandments, is what God wants most from us. That God is a God who expects us to keep the rules. And we talk about this a lot in church world, if you're familiar. It's, we'll say, you know, it's not religion, it's relationship. It's not about religion, it's about relationship. And that's what makes us different from a lot of other religions in the world, or all the other religions in the world, is because it's built on relationships. So what do we mean by that? What is it that we're trying to say? Well, we're trying to say, right, that it's, it's not just a bunch of rules, It's not just a bunch of check boxes that we have to go through that somehow appease a higher deity, but it is a personal relationship that we have with Christ. When we come to Christ, we don't have to get our lives in order and make sure that we've got all the boxes checked. We can come to Christ just as we are, right? And we can come to him fully and wholeheartedly and surrender our lives to him and enter into what? relationship right we enter into relationship with him because our faith in Christ is based on relationship not being good enough or achieving or following following the rules some people think that it's you know having faithful church attendance or uh, faithfully reading the bible or tithing that these are the things that God wants the most from them and again these are good things these are important things they are commanded things But is it really what God wants the most from us? And I think sometimes what happens, right, we talked about last week, is that we begin to think about these things because it's easy, right? It's tangible. It's something that I can sort of mark and list, and it's something that I can speak to. And these things become what my spiritual life is about rather than relationship because it's harder to measure and to categorize relationship, And a lot of it depends on how we think about who God is. And last week we talked about this is he is our heavenly father, right? He's not just some cosmic scorekeeper who's watching to see if you're following the rules, if you're doing enough or if what you're doing is good enough. True spirituality begins with an accurate picture of God. And so what do you think God wants from you the most? Romans chapter 12 verse 1, speaks specifically to this relationship. And we're going to come back to Romans 12 sort of towards the end here. Uh, But let me just read for you Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1, and and just verse 1. This is what it says. Paul is writing. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Paul is talking about the relationship that we have with God. As he goes on in chapter 12, we're going to look at how it impacts the other relationships that we have. But he's talking about the significance of the, spirit, of the relationship that we have with God. And what is it that God wants most? He wants his own glory. Well, how does he receive glory? He wants worship, right? He wants worship is what he wants the most from us. That when we worship him, then he is rightly glorified. When we worship, he receives the glory. This morning, when we gather together, God is glorified because he's receiving worship. And so how do we give him worship? What is 
spiritual worship look like? Well, Paul tells us it's when we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. When we present our bodies as a sacrifice. Some versions say when we offer, when we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, then God is glorified. We engage in spiritual worship. This is what God wants from us the most. And this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to go back to Genesis chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, it's going to be a little bit of a marathon. Uh, But I want to walk through with us 11 chapters of Genesis. If you have, you know, a few hours. Um, I'm just kidding. We're going to do a high level sort of 35,000 foot view summary of the life of Abraham. And, And here's why. Here's the point is because I think that the life of Abraham is exactly an identification, a marker of what Paul is speaking about in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And here's what I believe is that Abraham's journey reveals what God wants most, not just for him, but for each of us. And that his journey, his life, and what God took him through is different, right? And the application, the print, you know, the things that the, the gift, the rewards, the response of God. The covenant with Abraham was different for him. But the principles of application for us are very much the same. They're very consistent for you and I today. And so this morning, I want to look back at Abraham's journey to discover what God wants most from us. Abraham is called the father of our faith. And so if you'll open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to take you from Genesis chapter 12, very briefly, very much a summary, all the way to Genesis chapter 22. And the reason I want to do this is because I want to be able to give us a look at his life and enough of his life to see the whole journey. It's not a cookie cutter life. You know, sometimes we think of Bible characters and we think of them as these people that are kind of up on this pedestal that had these really special dynamic relationships with God that didn't really have a whole lot of issues that really relate to us today. But when we begin to get into it, we realize that Abraham is a man just like you and I. That he was not some stained glass person who did everything right. And we're going to be able to see that God takes him on a journey. And in this journey, he gives him a variety of tests. And there are tests that Abraham gets, but they are very similar to tests that God gives us. I think that God is constantly testing us. But it's not in the sense of like some Scantron test that he's giving us, right? Where we've got to get all the right answers or else God is disappointed. But God tests us in the sense that he is constantly presenting to us opportunities for us to express and respond to the value of his relationship with us. He is constantly creating situations and experiences so that you and I have an opportunity to express the value that we have for the relationship that exists between us and God. And so I believe that these are tests that we have have before us today. We looked at this a little bit briefly, the beginning of it, a couple weeks ago in Genesis chapter 12, when we saw the call to follow God. And here's the reality, right, is that we are all called by God to trust him with our future. And so when we talk about this idea of trusting God with our future, really what we're talking about is surrendering to him, right? Think about this in terms of the gospel. When we think about coming to Christ and have a personal relationship with him, part of what we do is we put our trust in him, But what that means is that we surrender to him. We surrender our life. We surrender our will. We surrender all of our ideas and our hopes and our dreams, and we submit them to Christ. And we acknowledge and agree to follow him and to walk with him the rest of our days. And that's what God does here, literally, with Abraham. And so in Genesis chapter 12, you can follow along in your Bible if you want. We see Abraham... And it opens up in chapter 12 in this way. It says, Then the Lord told Abraham to leave your country, your relatives, your father's house, and to go to the land that I will show you. I will cause you to become the father of a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and I will make you a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. All of the families of the earth will be blessed through you. 
So we see this pretty significant, big promise that happens. And Abraham, remember, he's 75 years old. And it says that Abraham departed as the Lord had instructed him. And God asks Abraham, he says, Abraham, are you going to trust me with your future? You know, he's living in one of the greatest cities of his day. His family is there. His house is there. His land is there. And God says, I want you to leave. I want you to take a step of faith and step out and follow me. And I want you to leave the security of your home. I want you to leave the familiar. I want you to leave and follow me. And by the way, I'm not going to tell you where you're going to go. You know, that's a lot of fun, right? And the same is true for us. You know, in an ultimate sense, we know our destination is with Christ in eternity. But here on earth, it's not always clear. God calls us to things, but the destination is not always clear. And along the way, God gives us a series of tests. And these tests are opportunities for us to surrender. They're opportunities for us to say that we value the relationship that we have with Christ. And so let me just skate through these. These are in your notes. If you want to follow along, you're welcome to do that. But just seven tests that Abraham faces that I think are similar for us today. And then we'll follow and close with just a couple of points of application for us. So test number one is the test of famine. And you might think, well, famine, I probably will never face the test of famine. But it's not really what the test is, right? Isn't that how God works? A lot of times there's these events that happen in our lives, these circumstances that happen in our lives, but that's not really what God is doing. That's not really the main point. The circumstances of our lives have an underlining spiritual point that God is calling us to. They have an underlining spiritual message. And sometimes we get so fixated on the circumstances that we forget to ask the question of what is it that God is trying to show me in this event? What, God, what is it that God is trying to teach me through this circumstance? Because it can become so overwhelming. But once we ask the right questions, then we can have the right perspective on the things that are happening in our lives. And so test number one is a famine, but this was the real test, is God was asking Abraham, and I think that he's asking you and I, is will you trust him to protect you? Will you trust God to protect you? Chapter 12, verses 10 through 20, talk about this time of famine. And again, just a summary, right? You know the story that Abraham is there, and God is saying, are you going to trust me that I'm going to protect you. And so in verse 10, it says that there's this famine and Abraham goes down and Abraham immediately goes, you know what? My wife, Sarah, she is very beautiful. And when I show up to Egypt, they are also going to think that she is very beautiful. And if they think that she's very beautiful, they're going to want to take her as their own. And if they do that, guess what's going to happen to me? (laughs) They are going to kill me. And so I've got this idea, Sarah, let's just say that you are my sister. And then that way, they won't need to kill me because I'm not getting in their way kind of a thing, right? And so they go in, Abraham's got this bright idea, and he goes in and goes down to Egypt. And guess what happens? Pharaoh looks at Sarah, and Pharaoh says what? That she is beautiful. And he wants to take her as his own. And so he takes Abraham's wife, Sarah, into his harem. But before he has an opportunity to sleep with her, God thankfully intervenes. And he lets Pharaoh know, he basically says, you know, you're, you're going to be in big trouble if you continue with this. And, you know, if you read the text, Pharaoh basically says, I didn't know. Nobody told me. That's not really fair. <laughs> you know, and he goes to Abraham and he says, you know what? What are you trying to do to me? Why didn't you tell me that this was your wife? And in fact, he is so worried about the God of Abraham that he says, here, here's some extra sheep, some extra cows, and you know your God, he's powerful, and so just leave, (laughs) just get out of here. And Abraham uh, finally is able to leave with his wife. But here's the point, right, is that God gives him this test right away, and it is, are you going to trust me to protect you? And immediately what what happens is that Abraham fails the test. Abraham lies about Sarah, saying that she's just his sister, and Abraham fails. 
And you think, here's Abraham, right? He's this great man of God. He's just stepped out, you know, going away from his home. And he's making this major move of faith in the direction that God is calling him. And the first test that comes along, the first situation that comes along, Abraham fails. I don't know if you've ever felt like that before, but man, I've been there, right? You're following God and you're trying to do what he wants you to do. And it seems like the first challenge that comes along, you blow it and you mess up and you just fail completely. But God's not done with Abraham there, thankfully, amen? And so there's a second test that comes along. And the second test is a test of greed. It's a test of greed. And here's the question. I might be a little bit behind. That, that was the first one. This, here's the question is, will you trust him to provide for you? Will you trust him to provide for you? And for, so there's a question about protection, and then there's a question about provision. So chapter 13, if you want to flip over there, you'll notice when the text opens that they've left Egypt. And if you skip down to verse 3, uh, Abraham is with his nephew Lot. And they're traveling together, and they both have become very wealthy and they have a lot more sheep and livestock and camels than the land can hold. And so Abraham has a decision to make. And he's kind of the head honcho of the group. And this is his nephew. And so he goes out in this big piece of land that's out there. And he does something that's very unusual. Because Abraham is beginning to learn how to trust God. And so what does he do? He surrenders to the Lord. And he says this. He says, I'll tell you, tell you what, Lot. There's not enough room for both of us to be here. And so I'm, I'm going to let you choose what piece of land you want. If you want to take the land that's down there, then, you know, they're up on a hill. If you want to take the land that's down there, the valley that's lush with the water, then you can take that and I'll stay up here. If you want to stay up here, then I'll go down there. And, you know, it had the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah down there. And so Lot took the best land. And after this, notice that God appears to Abraham in verse 14 of chapter 13 of chapter 13 and after lot was gone the lord said this to abraham said look as far as you can see in every direction i am going to give you all of this land to you and to your offspring as a permanent possession and i am going to give you so many descendants like the dust that cannot be counted so in the first situation right round 1 he failed but then what happens in round 2 in round 2 it's this issue of possessions and greed. And he says, you know what, God? I'm going to trust you. And God says, you know what? Because you've trusted me, because you've surrendered your will to me, then I've got even bigger blessings for you than you can even imagine. That your descendants are going to be, um, your descendants are going to be like the dust that cannot be counted. And so Abraham and Lot, he lets Lot choose the land in test number two, this time he passes. So he fails the first one, and he passes the second one. But then there's test number three. And test number three is a little bit different. It's a test of prosperity. Now, you might think of like greed and prosperity, right, being hand in hand, which a lot of times they are. But greed is a little bit different because it's when we want something that we don't have. And prosperity deals with our attitude about the things that we already have. And so the question that comes from this, the test is, will you trust him with your possessions? So it's one thing to have greed, to want something, it's something else to have a lot. Most people, when they get a lot, they start to lose sight of God. It's just a lot of times how life goes. The more stuff that we have, the more preoccupied we become with that stuff. We become less dependent on God and more dependent on our own control of our own lives. So in chapter 14, we find out that there's a, a group of kings that are, decide that they're going to go to battle. So there's these five kings, and they go to battle, and they come down, and they defeat the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, Lot is down there. That was where he chose to live. And Lot gets taken away, and his family gets taken away, and his servants and all of his possessions get taken away, and he's done. And Abraham, here's what happens, and what does he do? He gathers his men. This is like Jack Ryan stuff, right? He gathers his men, they go during the night, they attack, and they sort of defeat all of the bad guys, and they come back, and he brings everybody back and everything back. 
And so everybody returned safely. And now he's got even more camels and more sheep and more gold than anybody can imagine. And not only does he get all of their stuff back, but then he also comes back with all the stuff that belonged to the kings because he defeated the kings. And so he's got all this stuff that he comes back with, all these material possessions. And then when he comes back, we see this picture where he's interacting with Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is the pre-incarnate Christ. It's Christ before he came to earth that we see in the Gospels. And Christ reveals himself to Abraham as the prince of Salem, the priest of the God Most High. And this is what he says. He says, blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has helped you conquer your enemies. And then Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods that he recovered. Now, what's kind of interesting here yet is that at this point, there's no law. There is no rule requiring him to tithe. Abraham meets the pre-incarnate Christ, and he is so blessed by him. He says, hey, you know, I want you to know that I understand that everything that I got came from you. And so he gives him a, a generous tenth of all that he had. And, you know, all this stuff that he got, even from the kings of Sodom, he's very grateful. And, and in fact, uh, the kings try to, you know, say, hey, you know, just keep all the stuff. You know, we're just grateful that you came in and you won and just keep all of our stuff. Just give us the people back. And notice what Abraham says. He says this. He says, I wouldn't take a thread off of one of the sandals. You can have all the people back. You can have all the stuff back. Because I never want there to be a day that would come when someone would say that the king of Sodom made me rich. He says, my dependency is on God and God alone. And he's, you know, got this test with all this stuff. And he acknowledges, he recognizes that it's completely from God. And so he passes this test, really with flying colors, right? Because he gives some of it back to Melchizedek, the pre-incarnate Christ. And so he passes test number three. Well, then we have test number four. And this is a test of courage. And the question is, is will you trust him to fulfill his promises? And this is chapter 15. And so it's a little bit different. The courage that we see here is to trust in God's promises. And you, you start to see a pattern develop that each time he passes a test, each time he surrenders to the Lord, there's a pattern that develops. Uh, the Lord speaks to him after the, uh, and gives him like a vision. And, and he says, don't be afraid, Abraham. I will protect you and your reward will be great with me. And so Abraham is constantly hearing these promises from God. And he has the courage to not just passively experience God. In other words, he doesn't just hear all these promises, but he then goes to God and says, God, you're telling me I'm going to have all these descendants and I don't even have one offspring yet. Like, I'm coming to claim these promises. I'm coming to claim what you have told me is going to happen. He has great courage and steps out. There's a sense of, hey, God, you're making these promises and I'm not going to just passively listen to this, but I'm going to own it. I'm going to claim it as my own. And God is delighted by this. He says, Abraham, look, I'm going to make your descendants as plentiful as the stars in the sky. And they're going to come through your personal seed. It won't be your servant. And the Bible said this, it says this. It says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned or accounted to him as righteousness. See, he came to claim the promise and it was credited to him as righteousness. He has a courage that's not passive to just intellectually understand what God says. He boldly says, God, if this is true, then I'm going to own it. I'm going to claim it. When was the last time that you and I had that kind of prayer? When was the last time that instead of saying, you know, oh, God, help me, or, you know, what about this, or what about that, that we said, you know what, God, these are your promises, and I am going to bank on them. I'm going to claim them as my own. You know, there are 
there's, there's sort of a heretical faith out there, or heretical teaching out there, that's this name it and tame it, claim it kind of idea, right? It's, it's prosperity gospel. It's this idea that God wants us to be wealthy, and if we just have enough faith that we can just claim it, and, it's our, and it can be ours. And it's, it's heresy. There's nothing in Scripture that teaches that it's God's will for us to all be wealthy and have material possessions here on earth. But what happens, I think, sometimes is that we get so scared of this heretical theology that we don't want to, you know, we become passive in our relationship with God. We become passive in our faith. But there are promises from God that we can claim. Did you know that God promises to give us joy and peace and hope when we ask for it? That it's there, it's at our disposal, and all we have to do is claim it. But sometimes we are so passive in our faith that we lose sight of our ability to claim what God has already promised us. And Abraham had courage and it delighted the heart of God. And so he passes test number four. God had a covenant with Abraham that he would give him a specific offspring. And he believes that promise He claims that promise and he passes. Well, test number five then is a test of timing. And here's the question is, will your trust in him or will you trust him by patiently enduring? And of course, you you probably know this story, right? Genesis chapter 16, Sarah's wife is beautiful, but her biological clock is ticking. And this is the test for them as a couple is, will you trust me by patiently enduring? See, God has promises for us, but oftentimes his timetable is different than ours. And so we have to trust him. And while we're waiting, we have to trust that he is doing a real deep work in our hearts and in our character. And so, if you know the story, Sarah goes to Abraham. She's getting worried that she's run out of time, and so she's got this idea. She says, you know, I think that it's God's will for us to have a son, but, you know, we believe in this promise, but, you know, we, we probably need to help him out. <laughs> have you ever thought about that before? Do you ever feel like, you know, I know this is God's will. I just need to help him a little bit and get there. That's kind of what was going on here with Sarah, that, you know, she, she was going to help God out a little bit. And so she said, I've got this maidservant of mine. You know, why don't you lay with her? And since she's your servant, she'll have a baby. And then that baby can be our baby because that's kind of okay in our culture. And so we can make this work. You know, and Abraham, being the, the dude that he is, is like, yeah, this is a great idea, right? <laughs> let's, it's not really how God spelled it out to me, but... Let's make it happen, and I think we can make this work. And, of course, you know the story that he uh, sleeps with Hagar. He has a son, Ishmael. And, of course, we know that Ishmael uh, causes problems for the nation of Israel for the rest of history, even into our current day. And so it's a big mistake. As time goes on, there's all kinds of stories of conflict between Abraham's wife and Ishmael's mother. And Abraham fails this test. And this is an important thing for us to see, I think, sometimes, because sometimes we can think that Bible characters are just these squeaky clean people that never make mistakes. But that's not how life works. And it's not how life works with God, and it's not how life works for you and I. In your life and in mine, it's, it's a process. It's a journey. Sometimes we can make good steps forward, and then we blow it. And then you make some forward steps a little bit more, and then you blow it again. You know, just read the Psalms. The whole story narrative of David is this, right? I love you, God. I love you, God. And he's like, where's God? Where, where's, where did God go? No, I love you, God. I love you, God. And where, where did God go? And it's just this back and forth, right? And so Abraham fails pretty big on this one. But you know what's interesting to me about this is that it's not at this point in the story that God turns to Gabriel and says, you know what, this Abraham project is not working. So let's find somebody else. He doesn't do that, right? And thank the Lord, he didn't do that with Abraham and he doesn't do it with you and I. Life is full of ups and downs. It's full of successes and failures. And when there is a failure, God 
will be faithful. But listen, his faithfulness is not always to just make the failure go away, right? Ishmael continued to create problems. But his faithfulness is to create more opportunities for us to be able to surrender to him so that we can appropriately assign value to the relationship between us and God. I'm thankful that he doesn't do that with us. But he fails, number five, miserably and pays for it. Test number six is a test of obedience. And the question is, is will you trust him when he asks something that doesn't make sense? Chapter 17 is where we see this. And the story of Abraham continues along and God makes a covenant with Abraham again. He's in this period, this stage, right, where he's in this covenant-making process with Abraham. And so he makes another covenant with him and it's getting more and more specific, more and more detailed. And so this is a test of obedience, but not just obedience that, you know, you know don't cross the street because there's cars coming, like it makes sense. It's obedience when it doesn't make sense. Some of us have been familiar with the Bible for many, many years, and we gloss over things like this passage, I think, a lot of times forgetting how significant of a command this would have been, how important of a covenant and how hard of a covenant this would be. But go back and you look at this and God tells Abraham, Abraham, I want you to circumcise yourself and your son. I want you to circumcise as an everlasting covenant and a mark from here on. And you can imagine, right? Abraham is like, what? You want me to do what? (laughs) Right? This isn't like a known thing. Abraham is like, are you kidding me? Like, do you realize how old I am? God's like, yeah, I, I want you to do this. And obviously, we don't want to get too graphic here, but it is a painful, unpleasant, uh, makes no sense kind of a command. And what does this have to do with following God? Have you ever thought that? Like, God, what on earth are you asking of me? What does this have to do with anything that you have planned? When was the last time that you were absolutely sure that God wanted you to do something, but it didn't make any sense at all? In those moments, are you able to trust him? You know, God, maybe it's, you know, wanting to give money to something when we're struggling financially. Maybe it's needing to forgive a person after they did something that was unkind. It doesn't always make a lot of sense. But God calls Abraham to do this. And he does it. And he obeys. And he passes the test. And so we've talked about protection and provision and his promises courage and patiently enduring, even when it doesn't make sense, even when you don't understand. So what is God's agenda so far? What is the one thing that he is trying to teach Abraham? It is this, will you trust me? Will you surrender your will to mine in the circumstances of your life? And so now we get to the very end of this testing period. And it's Genesis chapter 22. And it's a test that really is the final exam. It is the culmination of all the other tests. It is dealing with the protection and provision, the promises, the covenant. Uh, Is he going to have courage? Is he going to endure patiently? All of these things culminate in test number seven. It's the final exam. And it's this question for each one of us is will you trust him with everything and everyone in your life? You're probably familiar with the story in Genesis chapter 22. It's not just a final exam, but it is a foreshadowing of what Christ would do for us. But he's leading Abraham, and Abraham is making progress. He's believing in God's promises. He's beginning to build his character And now God says to him, you know, here is this outrageous request. Abraham, I want you to take your son, your one and only son that you love, who's roughly about 13 years old at this point, and I want you to take him to a mountain that I'm going to show you, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. Now, as bizarre as that situation may sound to us, 
just in the pagan worship of that day, it actually probably wasn't all that uncommon to him. And so Abraham goes. The Bible says that he got up early in the morning. Early in the morning, he got up to obey. By the way, you know, it's probably good form for us that when God tells us to do something, when he speaks to us, that we do it, right? Because the longer that we wait, the higher the probability goes that we probably won't. When God speaks, we have to act. And so he got up, he chopped some wood, he gets his boy, he gathers a couple of servants, and they have this long walk. And it's this three-day journey that God takes him on. And he leads him to this mountain, but God gave him a lot of time to think. I think that part of that had to have been because he, he didn't want Abraham to just make a quick knee-jerk response decision, right? That he wanted Abraham to sit in the gravity of what was going on. He wanted Abraham to really wrestle with, do I trust God? Do I really? Am I really willing to surrender, not just this or that, my money, my possessions, my home, but everything, right? This was his son. This was his family. This was the means through which all of the blessing that had been promised him was supposed to come. And so there was a moment of truth, and he takes his son, he builds an altar, and if you've read the story before, you can go back and read this, but it's uh, this, this part where he puts Isaac on the altar, and he takes a knife, and he raises the knife up to sacrifice his son, and the Lord stops him. The Lord steps in and spares Isaac's life and provides a substitute sacrifice. It's a foreshadowing of what would come, but it is an anchoring of his faith in God for Abraham. And so Abraham named the place the Lord will provide. And on the mount of the Lord, he will be provided. And the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven and said, because you have obeyed me and not withheld even your beloved son, I swear by my own self that I will bless you. Notice that with this final step of surrender, we see God's heart and God's desire for Abraham. He says, I will richly bless you. I will multiply your descendants into countless millions like the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. And they will conquer their enemies. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All because you have obeyed me. See, surrender is always the first step to true spirituality. I like this. Bill Lawrence wrote this. He says, with God, risk really means risk. And it can cost us all that we have. But when we take risks with God, we will gain all that he has. We can never know God in power and love without taking risks in him. If you want to experience the full depth of power and love of God, then it requires risk. It requires surrendering. We can't hold on to everything that we want and then somehow kind of balance God on the side. He wants us to release everything, to surrender everything in every situation, everything and sometimes everyone so that we can experience the full blessing of God. You can't go through all these tests about possessions and courage and protection and relationships whether or not we're willing to wait, our, our heart and mind begins to race and ask these questions of what is it that I'm holding on to? Are you putting conditions on your obedience? You know, God, do whatever you want to do, but don't ask me to move. God, do whatever you need to do, but don't mess with my family. Don't, don't let anybody get hurt or have any issues. God, I want to be in your will, but I've got, I've got my retirement plan. Don't mess with my money. God, I'll follow you. I'll follow you as, as much as you want me to, as long as it ends up here. Right? And are we willing to give up our future? Sometimes it's like saying, God, you know, can you help me? Because I want your help 
but help me do it my way because I want to do it my way. Don't mess with my plans. Just help me accomplish the ones that I have. Or we can say, you know, God, I believe that you are so good and so kind and so powerful and I want to know you and trust you with all that I have and all that I am. And when we do that, then we pass the test. We engage with our Heavenly Father in union, in communion, in relationship. And after each test, God sweetens and broadens his, co- his covenantal promises to Abraham. And those same promises are, you know, not exactly the same, but we can also experience the same reward and promise in our lives. And so let me just kind of highlight a couple of principles here as we close. Abraham's confidence in God's promises and God's character were the secret to his surrender and reward. The secret to his surrender and his reward was his commitment and understanding to God's promises and character. If we're not careful, we can begin to think that Abraham has, you know, underneath his robe, a big S with a cape on, right? That he's somehow this like super Christian and that he's not like us at all. But he had all the fears and the struggles and he had big failures that he had in his life. But he got to the point where he said, I'm going to believe in God and in his character because God can't lie. He's trustworthy. I can surrender my future. I can surrender my family. I can surrender my singleness to him. I can surrender my money. I can surrender my dreams because of his character and his promises lead me to surrender so that I can receive his reward. In fact, in New Testament Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 4. It says, he, speaking of Abraham, staggered not at the promises of God through unbelief, but he was strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that he promised he was able, that what he promised, he was able also to perform. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews talks about this too. In chapter 11, verse 6, it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he exists and is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This is a picture of a father giving up the highest and the best only to receive more. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's not about the rules. It's about relationship. It's not about performance. It's about God being our heavenly father. And there are certain rules that we have to follow. And there are certain activities that you'll do, but not without faith and love. We have a whole nation of people who think that if we would just be a little bit nicer or a little bit more moral, or if we would come and be part of a few more religious activities, that somehow that's what it means to follow Christ. And it's a lie. There's no power in that. In fact, cults do that. Other religions do that. Ours is based in a relationship with a heavenly father who is all-knowing and all-powerful. And yet, we don't really get into the game until we fully surrender. And so what do we believe? Without faith, it's impossible to please him who comes to God. And so we must believe two things. One, we must believe who he is We must believe that he is who he really says he is, that he is all-powerful, that he is creator, that he is the one that raised Christ from the dead. But we forget the second half, that he is also the rewarder. And so what do you think? How did Abraham's life turn out? Does anybody feel sorry for Abraham? (laughs) Probably not. There are millions and millions and millions of people, including those of us in this room, that are blessed because of Abraham. He became a man of esteem, a man of honor, a man of wealth, a man of influence. But, you know, sometimes we look at all the surfacey things, but really what he became was a man of faith. He put his faith in his trust in God. He learned to trust God and to provide for him. He learned to hold his possessions with an open hand. He learned to wait on God. He learned to say, God, I'm going to do this even though it doesn't really make sense. 
And maybe those are the exact same lessons that God wants for you and me. See, Abraham's life reveals that surrender is a channel through which God's biggest and best blessings flow. So keep in mind, again, we're not talking about that if you obey God, if you check all these boxes, then God is going to reward us with earthly esteem and wealth and honor and possessions. No, what we're saying is that when we align our hearts with God, when he, because he is our heavenly father, brings us to a point where we surrender to him, then we reap all of the blessings that he has in store for us. Spiritual blessings as well as physical blessings. This is not about the few, the proud, the Marines, right? It's not for those that are just a cut above everybody else. This is for all of us. It's about saying, I love you, that you are my father, that you have a great plan for us. You wired us. You know our deepest needs. You know our deepest hurts. You know the ways that we have been betrayed. And we want to give you the highest and the best in our lives. And so we surrender it all. Heaven is filled with blessings, and they have your name on it. And it's, it's almost like, if you can imagine, I, we don't know exactly where heaven's at, but, so this, this is not like biblical, I'm just illustrating, right? It's like in heaven, you have heaven, and then there's this like big PVC pipe, and it's coming straight to our hearts. And when we turn our hearts over to Christ, and we surrender to him, then we have access to all of this blessing that God has in store for us. But so many times we disconnect from the pipe because we want to fill our hearts and our lives with the things that we think are going to make us happy, with the things that we think are important. This PVC pipe is surrender. And so Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. It's this idea of offering. It's a verb that means in a specific point in time, you offer your body as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, a spiritual service to the Lord. It's talking about putting our faith in him and coming to him as our personal savior. What does God want from you more than anything else? It's not your money. It's not your religious activity. It's not your rule keeping. It's your heart. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That's the command. What's the motivation? Because of the mercies of God. That's the motivation. Because God, in his great mercy, sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, so that we could know him and have relationship with him and live in eternity with him. It's not just to get into heaven, but it's to know him and have relationship with him and live in eternity with him. And what's the reason? It's our spiritual act of worship. Surrender is the key to experiencing true spirituality. John chapter two says this, I tell you the truth, unless the kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, It remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. (coughs) Surrender and sacrifice lead to life. Psalm 84 verse 11 says, The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing will he withhold. As we seek after him, as we surrender our lives to him, God will not withhold anything. Because you know what? When we're rightly walking with the Lord, then the desires of our heart will be aligned with the desires of God. And then there will be a flood of blessing that will come from the Lord because we will desire the things that God desires. It won't be a flood of possessions and wealth and earthly success and fame necessarily. All those those things might happen, but it's an alignment that brings about the fruitfulness of the Holy Spirit. And so let me close with this. What does God want from you and me? 
For some of us, we're hanging on our stuff and our future and our money, and it's got our heart. God never really wanted Isaac to be sacrificed. God wanted Abraham's heart, and he wants our hearts as well. He wants your heart. He wants you to say, I trust you. And God will make you make some really hard decisions just like he did with Abraham. But let's get honest. It probably, in terms of surrender, gets worse before it gets better. Right? We, we know, because when we talk about this stuff, we know the things that we're holding on to. And it probably will get worse before it gets better. And there will be periods of loneliness and hurt. But in time, then we experience God's power. We experience his grace. And then he will do something significant. There's a came across this story. There was a fellow that was putting some clothes together for his wife's funeral. And they were a middle-aged, relatively young couple. And his brother, the brother of the man who lost his wife, told the story. And this is what his brother said. He said, I watched my brother open the bottom drawer to his wife, Jane's, bureau. And he lifted out a tissue-wrapped package. It was an exquisite silk handmade piece of lingerie with a trim cobweb of lace. The price tag that it carried on it had an astronomical figure and it was still attached to the clothing. Jane had bought it the very first time that they went to New York nine years ago, but she never wore it. She was saving it for a special occasion. Well, my brother thought to himself, I guess this is the special occasion. And he took the lingerie. He put it on the bed along with the other clothes that he was taking to the mortician. His hands lingered on the soft material. And then he slammed the door shut. And he said, don't ever save anything for a special occasion. You know, I think the observation for us today is that the average Christian is saving their very best for God. We always think that someday when things are different, then we're going to eventually unwrap the tissue paper of our lives. That someday we'll get serious. Someday we'll take a real step. Someday I'm going to have reckless abandon and I'm really going to do something. After the kids are older, after I get a job, eventually when I'm more comfortable. And you know, someday... You'll die in your grave fully believing, filled by the lies of the enemy, that someday, some way, that you're really going to get into the game. And so we have to ask this question, what is it that God wants most? Are you willing to surrender? Am I really willing to give God all I am and all that I have? He wants me by faith to say, Lord, I'm all in. In some sense, you might think about it like this, that God today is asking for you to give a blank check. Sorry, I'm clicking around here. Are you willing to give God a blank check for your life? That whatever he wants, whatever he asks, that it's his. Chip Ingram said this. He said, surrender is the secret to God's best. Surrender is the key to power. Surrender is the channel through which God's biggest and best blessings flow. Surrender is the greatest need in the body of Christ today. Christians who by faith in the response to the glorious and amazing grace of God say to him at one specific point in their life, all I am and all I have is yours. The rest that God will not withhold any good thing and rest that God will not withhold any good thing for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we just come before you and acknowledge that we have a lot of failures and a lot of successes in our lives. For some of us, we probably feel like we have way more failures than successes. And yet, God, you remain faithful. And you continue to call us, not just to walk with you, but to surrender all that we have to you so that we can live day by day with you and for you and in the reward of your blessing. It's easy to hold on to certain things. And God, we know that there's areas of our life that we are reluctant to completely release and to surrender over to you. And so God, we just confess these areas. We confess the areas of our life that 
that we've been trying to maintain control, that we've been trying to hold on to, that we've been reluctant to completely transfer over because we just, at the end of the day, are not really sure how it's going to go. And so, God, we are, right now, we surrender all that we have. God, we trust you with whatever the results are. God, we trust you to protect. We trust in the fulfillment of your promises. We trust in your provision. God, we claim your promises in our lives. And God, we trust in your timing in all of these things. And God, in everything that we have, in everyone that we're responsible for, God, we surrender it to you. God, that you may be glorified. Because it's not about what we do or don't do. But it's because we love you as our Heavenly Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.